0: You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation. So welcome to Simulcast, I'm Victoria Brazil and I'm joined again by Ben Simon here on the last Simulcast Journal Club for 2019. How are you, Ben?
1: Oh, mate, I am very good and um, Santa clearly got your letter because, you know, we're looking at a meta-analysis very close to Christmas Eve, what more could you ask for?
0: What more could I ask for? And indeed, that's the theme of today, (laughs) methods and metrics. Uh, And you're right, a meta-analysis, a Delphi study. What more could I want? It has been a great year, Ben. Some highlights, I guess, we'll get to at the end of the year. Uh, But why don't you jump in right now and tell us a little bit about the paper of the month and what's our bloggers thought about it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the article that we looked at for December is called Comparing the Learning Effectiveness of Healthcare Simulation in the Observer versus Active Role, Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. And it was published in 2019 in Simulation in Healthcare by, De- written by Delisle et al., and it was recommended by Jenny Rudolph this month. So in this article, Delisle et al. aim to explore the question, whether compared to active simulation is observed simulation as effective in healthcare training for improving patient outcomes and participant behavior, learning and reactions. Um, I think we've had a number of conversations over the last couple of years about the importance of activating your observers and, and the importance of scaling to sim scaling SIM to larger and larger groups. So it seemed like a pretty reasonable question. The authors explore initially how, historically, simulation theory really took a stance that the benefits of the process were from experiential learning, and they describe Erickson's theory of deliberate practice. They argue that these theories emphasise learning by physically interacting with one's surroundings and other participants, followed by reflection to assimilate new knowledge with existing beliefs but they then outline the theories that support learning through observation, specifically social learning theory and the concept of reflection on action. Interestingly, when they go to look at the observer role, they make a distinction between in-scenario observers, such as passive role players within the sim space, and external observers, so people watching a sim from another room. And they also quote Stephanie O'Regan with regard to the difference between directed and non-directed observation, i.e. where the observers have been given a specific task while they're watching the sim. Eventually, from their lit search, they settled on 13 papers for qualitative synthesis and 11 papers for statistical meta-analysis, and then they analysed them with their eyes on uh, the Kirkpatrick, Kirkpatrick levels. So was there a difference in uh, participant reactions, in their learning, in any behavioural change outcomes, or ideally in patient outcomes as well? Um, did you want to comment there at all, Vic, on any thoughts about the methods?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's always interesting when you're trying to look at a question like this which already has a deal of, I don't know, confounding factors or variables that might influence your outcomes of interest, i.e. Kirkpatrick's level learners, and then you choose one specific binary question, i.e. observers versus participants as the influences on that. Uh, And I, I guess just... By way of methods, and I always feel a little bit of a fraud commenting on this, but I'll give it a go anyway. Uh, we mentioned the O'Regan paper earlier, which was a systematic review, and that suggests that you go through the literature systematically, although there are different ways of doing that, to identify papers of relevance. And I guess a meta-analysis is the next step on from that, where you actually take the numbers in the studies and try and combine them numerically and quantitatively to come up with literally a numeric indication of whether there is a difference between the uh, interventions that you're testing, in this case active participants versus observer participants. And... Uh I am quite going'm going to quote from someone who is an expert, and that is David Cook, because as some of our listeners might know, the uh, there's been a recent book released, Healthcare Simulation Research, A Practical Guide with Deborah Nestel as the main author. But David Cook, uh, who has written a number of systematic reviews in simulation, wrote the chapter on systematic reviews, and I'm going to quote him here. Uh, The most challenging aspect of conducting a meta-analysis is determining whether the original studies address a common question or framework. This is a conceptual, not a numeric decision. And I guess that gets to the point of any meta-analysis. Are you really comparing the same things and were these studies really set up to address that particular question? And some of these studies were, some of these studies not so much. Uh, And I think it's, always tricky when the context of that learning are different. And when you look through the papers that they discovered in their systematic review that they then put into their meta-analysis, they're across different learner groups, across different learner contexts, including technical and non-technical. So they really set themselves a pretty high bar here to try and conduct a meta-analysis on the kind of data that they had. And I think, at least as a non-methods expert, I would say they give it a pretty fair go. But the fundamental question that David Cook encourages us to think about uh, are these really comparisons that are the appropriate ones to make, I think is the more interesting point for discussion.
1: Hmm. I'm so glad you explained that and not me. (laughs) Thank you. I learned a lot in that last two minutes. That was awesome. (laughs) So when it comes to their findings uh, for Kirkpatrick Level 1, which is reactions, they didn't find any significant difference between the groups. Observers and active participants appeared to have similar responses to simulation, although understandably on some subgroup analysis, the observers might have reported feeling a bit less stressed. Uh, for Kirkpatrick Level 2, which is learning, uh, they found that active participants had significantly better learning than undirected observers, but no difference with directed observers. And then uh, only one study reported Kirkpatrick Level 3 outcomes, which is behavioural change, and they found no significant difference in behavioural change between groups. And then there was nothing on Level 4, understandably. So I guess my challenge with the paper, which I enjoyed reading, is I'm still left a little bit with the question of is there a difference between observer and participant experiences in sim? Um, are they hitting the same learning needs that I've designed in my curriculum? And I get the feeling the answer is sort of maybe, sort of, but not heaps different. Uh, Or is there just not enough data to go on here, Vic?
0: I think that's probably the thing. There's not enough homogeneous data to really go on. And I think the other thing that the study illustrates nicely is that there are other influences on those learning outcomes and the ones that they demonstrate through their diagrams in the study Uh, include looking at subgroups, debriefing versus no debriefing, technical skills versus non-technical skills. And I think that just gives us a little sense of um, what is the size of this effect, if any, of being active participants versus um, uh, observer participants. And so, for instance, if you kind of look at the level two outcome where they found a difference, a lot of that difference is accounted by the fact if there is a debriefing versus no debriefing. Um, but interestingly, there was no difference if the observers were directed versus non-directed. Now, I don't know exactly what to make of those things and I'm in no position to judge the statistical tests that they applied, but uh, I would say it's a little tricky to interpret some of those things. Um, plots that they've got as being wildly significant anyway and that's even without starting to get in on you know what are the actual measures of their outcomes and how good are they as measures of the learning so uh i I think this just sort of underlines to me that when you've got a sort of complex thing like an educational event how hard it is to reduce that to numbers
1: Mm, thank you I think that's true. I, I guess I feel like I've still got some broad reassuring brushstrokes that people are getting stuff out of uh, of observing simulations and uh, being in debriefs of simulations that they have observed rather than participated in. But I think, yeah, I think this question is going to keep coming up, uh, hopefully uh, more specifically in, in other trials as well.
0: Oh, I think you're right about that. I mean, I think if there's one thing we can take away, it isn't that all those... Little forest plots aren't skewed way over to one side where it says if you came and you didn't do the sim, you learnt nothing. They certainly don't say that. Uh, If anything, there's, you know, generally most of these uh, outcomes cross the cross zero and so it means that you can't be really sure whether they favor observation or participants and the the size of the effect is not huge so uh, i think it does reassurance that the people who are watching and not directly involved in the sim room are still getting a lot out of it
1: yeah yeah pretty reassuring Alrighty, so uh, going on now to a uh, summary of this month's Journal Club discussion, uh, big thank you to the people who came along and participated this month in that there were some new faces, which I was really excited to see, uh, as well as some returning or old favourites, which I'm always grateful for. Um, we had a great discussion. We also uh, got some contributions from the paper's senior author, Alex Hannenberg. so I uh, really appreciated that. And for me, I guess, uh, probably reflecting... My skills in deconstructing the quality of a meta-analysis, I guess we did talk a lot about observers and participants in general more than deconstructing the article. Um, The primary themes of discussion that came out were uh, there was a lot of great um, brainstorming of tips for activating your observers and keeping them engaged in the sim. Uh, there was acknowledgement that observers and participants are really likely to learn different types of things based on the very nature of the experience they're having. And thirdly... Alex, the senior author, uh, commented on the fact that activating ob- observers is a really important aspect of scaling simulation experiences to large groups. So finding out the answers to these questions is actually going to be re- very relevant as we continue to need to deliver more sim to larger and larger groups of people. So uh, Jen Deltam started by agreeing with the case study that I'd written that really um, seeing observers Observing learners not engaged with what is going on in a separate room is really not uncommon in any type of education. Uh, I think we've all probably had experiences where we put a lot of passion into a a teaching session and then we find a fair chunk of the room if they're not directly supervised uh, going to Facebook. Um, there's a lot of, Jen says, there's no accountability for these individuals to participate. And I've seen similar responses, whether it's a sim, when we video conference or lecture from one room to another, and we're all human intrinsically. We'll take the path that's easiest and personal devices are a quick and easy distraction for all of us. The proposed solution to this, I guess, as uh, per Anne Mullen, is that she says observers must be active. And when we plan a sim with observers, we need to provide the observers with a meaningful task. We want them to focus on the learning objective rather than be overwhelmed or focus on other aspects of the case. So in response to the article, the Journal Club has shared a really useful number of tips. Uh, people suggested things like giving them a checklist, Appointing a leader for the observer group to lead feedback discussions, physically moving observers into the sim room or giving them a passive role, giving them handmade cards of specific principles to watch out for or questions to reflect on, pre-briefing observers with specific tasks or questions, and then also actively seeking participant contributions in the debrief. Um, I particularly loved how Namat broke down her approach to observer roles in the phases of simulation. So she talked about what you can do to activate your observers in the pre-brief, then during the simulation, as well as during the debrief as well, which I thought was a very effective structure and it was quite just a nice sophisticated but slick way of thinking about how you're going to constantly reinforce that message to the people who aren't actively participating. Um, Mitzi Clifford came into the conversation and she had a great critique of the article itself, arguing that essentially observers and participants are really likely to learn different things through simulation. So comparing how a learner masters a new skill uh, because they've actively participated in a sim versus a learner who's observing with a lens focus on say communication and teamwork where well, she says that's really like comparing apples to pears and i think that was a really fair critique this is really nuanced stuff and as, as you and i have just discussed it's very likely that observers and active participants you know do different things in the sim they're going to take away different things and that's really hard to draw out of this meta-analysis uh, it was really nice to have Alex Hannenberg come by, and he discussed how one of his motivations for the article was that scalability is going to be essential both currently but also more likely in the future. He stated that our main interest in examining the potential of observed simulation has been in our quest to overcome barriers to scaling simulation-based education, especially when it's focused on teamwork and communication. So the research team involved here were really keen to try and uh, find where the significant learning differences were for Sim, as it will continue to be an important piece of evidence as we try to adjust our own faculty's uh, to participant ratios. All in all, it was a good month.
0: Yeah, I kind of feel like the General Club discussion uh, sort of captured some of the qualitative aspects of the question that the paper took the quantitative approach for, and looking through it doing our own little small t thematic analysis I, I think there were lots of suggestions in there about the general process of engaging learners about having the right pitch about thinking for ways for them to participate and processes but then also tools and I think a lot of people talked about having checklists and stuff like that I think all of that needs to be wrapped up in a set of expectations which Namat talked about and almost a culture that here you are it, if it's in your so-called growth mindset you're going to be looking for opportunities to learn from this um, rather than simply making sure that you're not required to do anything. And uh, I think, you know, working with both Mitzi and Namat Uh, I know Namat's had a lot of experience being in that debrief room and tracking things on a whiteboard, which we can talk about a little bit later, about what's actually happening in the sim. And, And she certainly describes everyone contributing to that as they go when they're sitting there watching, saying, oh, you know, we just saw that they'd given the induction agents. And so she says that actually provides often a little focal point for them to be documenting what's happening as they go. So it may be simpler than we think. Who knows?
1: Yeah, I'm going to steal that. I really like that technique. That was clever.
0: Yeah, especially when it um, can be tricky to know what happened when when everyone comes back in. You're listening to
1: Simulcast. Absolutely. Shall we move on to the papers of the month?
0: Why don't we do that? So as I said, we're keeping on with this theme of metrics and measurement and the and a little bit about methods, yes. Uh, The paper that I've chosen as the next one is also quite a quantitatively focused paper. It's titled Development of a Simulation Scenario Evaluation Tool, SSET, Modified Delphi Study. And this is by Jessica Hernandez and team from uh, Dallas, Texas. And really addresses the question about how do we know whether a scenario is any good? And I was going to put that to you, Ben. How do you know if the scenario you've written is any good? How do you know right now?
1: Oh, that's a great question. Um, and I think it depends on uh, <laughs> how you define a great scenario in that it I think it can often be looked at from the experience of You know, you walk out of the room and you can feel that you've got a highly activated group of learners who've had an engaging discussion, have clearly made some useful takeaway points uh, and seem uh, enriched and challenged by the process. Uh, And then I think sometimes that can sometimes almost be in conflict with a more basic question, which is, was the curriculum that we'd aim to teach Uh, successfully met and did the learning outcomes that we'd hoped from this experience to happen actually happen to our participants.
0: Mm. Yeah, I think that's pretty good. Uh, I I think that's probably as good as most of us are doing Uh, and this study helps us understand that. Uh, They suggest that the way that we're currently aiming to have quality scenarios written is through using templates and guidelines and obviously the fact that simulation educators get trained and get expertise. And just as you described, they either have good or bad feedback in terms of how it's received uh, at the end. But what they make the point of is that there's no, at least in in terms of their literature review, no validated tool for assessing or evaluating the quality of a scenario as written. So they set about trying to address this and they did a Delphi study, and we'll sort of talk a little bit about the methods of that without getting too deep, uh, to try and Uh, achieve a content validation of a tool by which you could look at a scenario and then rate various elements of that scenario, uh, which they did indeed come up with. So um, what did they actually do? So again, to try and describe inadequately this process, but a Delphi study is one of the methods by which you try and capture expert opinion. And they decided that in the absence of really robust literature which says this is the way to do this, uh, the best they could do would be to go to experts who had written a lot of scenarios, reviewed a lot of scenarios, and ask them, well, what should be the elements that define a good scenario and how should we go about rating them? So they had, as they describe, uh, basically a three-step process. So the first was to say, well, what kind of elements would you have in assessing the scenario? So most people would agree there should be learning objectives. Most people would think there would be a place of identifying critical actions. Some people might say you should have a debriefing plan in it. Most people would say you'd have scenario materials and resources. So they went to their the author's own experience uh, and literature and said, well, here's some we've come up with. They then um, created a draft instrument uh, or survey where they said, okay, here's our list of items and here's how we think they should be rated. So, to give you an example of that, it might be something along the lines of uh, learning objectives. And at the worst case scenario, it might be learning objectives are not measurable. The best is all learning objectives are easily measurable, and obviously, your anchors in between. And then they sent those to a series of experts and said, what do you think? And tried to then measure the agreement between those experts to come up with a final tool after a couple of rounds of this Delphi expert opinion. And again, I won't go into the statistics of that, but essentially they're looking for agreement between the experts so that they can say, yes, everyone agrees that learning objectives are good things to have in a scenario, so it's definitely going in the instrument. So, Ben, does that make sense? Questions, other contributions on that? Yeah,
1: no, yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, it's an exercise in consensus building essentially, isn't it? Yes. Uh,
0: Now, what did they actually find? Well, interestingly, they just as a tribute to how busy people are, they asked 221 experts. Their first round 38 participant, their second round 22 participated. I'm not sure what the usual benchmark would be for a Delphi study, but I'm not entirely surprised um, that they got only that number. That doesn't mean that there's still not good consensus. You could get that with that number. Uh, and they came up with a final tool, which uh, is figure six in the paper, and that's probably the thing to have a little bit of a look at in terms of the takeaway uh, which has 20 different items to rate, uh, seven of which are related to learning objectives, a couple on scenario content, a couple on scenario materials and resources. And for each one of those items, you get to rate one to five with three descriptors. So again, I'll take one example. Um, item six is about learning objectives and The lowest score is none of the objectives are time-specific and the top score is all objectives are time-specific and you rate somewhere in between. So uh, the idea is that then you sit there with your uh, evaluation tool, you look at your scenario and you go through and rate it for quality. So does it help? I can a couple of thoughts I have. I think it really depends on how quantified you want your scenario quality to be. And for some people that might be very important. For others, it might just serve as a little bit of an aide de memoir for giving feedback or critically reviewing something. Uh, And I don't think this author's um, uh, pretend this, but, you know, it's not actually been tested, so we can't really be sure how good it is in the hands of different raters because obviously people still have to, be relatively expert on scenarios to be able to use this rating tool so what did you think Ben
1: look I liked the idea and I think certainly as someone who's you know we're doing lots of projects of uh, writing sims that we'd like to share with people it would be lovely to have a little checklist of sort of basic important ingredients and so I think it's useful in that regard I guess my concern is that when I look at the ratings that they've chosen specifically it seems to reflect to me a need to like a good sim is one that allows you to rate the performance um and i felt like there was more of an emphasis on that in some sections than the learning that might be taken away and so i guess i just worry that there's sort of a focus on things that you can rate, things that are objective and measurable, whereas I don't know that's always the goal of the sim.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good point. I mean, and you're right, it situates the scenario very much in an educational construct and in a fairly narrow educational construct. It doesn't set the scenario as potentially an exploratory exercise, as it might be if your system's testing or other things. Uh, But I I guess they kind of make that clear. I'm with you. I think the best thing is, Here's a couple of, um, and I've always thought this about things like the Dash as well, Um, here's some things to really be thinking about, whether it's your debriefing with the Dash or whether it's your scenario writing with this tool. Uh, I can't imagine using the exact um, anchoring scales, but I could certainly see myself and fellows and people new to Sim as well looking down through the domains and thinking, oh, yeah, it's good to remind ourselves that we have actually covered off on that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think I think it, uh, there are, yeah, the concepts to me are more useful than the rating aspect. But I guess that might just reflect my bias because I feel the same way about debriefing ratings sometimes.
0: Hmm. Um, I did apply this to the Revenge sim in which I was a participate participant. Um, <laughs> was that your was own form of Revenge? Uh, no, no, no. But I but I did get to see the scenario that they got us to do this week, and there were only three learning objectives listed. One was revenge, two was humour, third was maybe some learning.
1: <laughs> That's lovely.
0: And I didn't know how it would go against this <laughs> rating scale, but I don't think they cared.
1: <laughs> don't know. It's humour measurable. That's a deep question.
0: <laughs> well, you know, baby out in less than one minute, just saying. <laughs> You're listening to
1: Simulcast.
0: All right. Well, uh, I'll go on to the last paper that we had chosen. And this one literally is hot off the press. Uh, the Timeline Debriefing Tool, a tool for structuring the debriefing description phase. Uh, this is in Advances in Simulation uh, by a couple of authors from France Terry Secherace and Severine Nalayton. And uh, really, this is a descriptive piece where they've just said, um, well, advances have called it a methodology paper, but they really mean methodology of simulation, not methodology of research. You could easily call it like an innovation report, but it's just a description of this is what we're doing. We think it's pretty cool, Uh, but they have not um, sort of said we've measured a particular impact. So what are they trying to do? Essentially, they're looking at the phase of debriefing that some people call the descriptive phase in which you're trying to establish a shared understanding of what actually happened in a simulation in order to inform a subsequent analysis phase so just to situate this for people who may or may not use the same debriefing structure we've got a reactions phase then we've got this description phase we'll factor the case then we move on to our analysis from there and um Basically, I'm going to sort of quote from the steps about how they do this, because I think this is a little bit of a departure from what most of us do. Uh, certainly, if you read the Pearls papers, this just gets either the debriefer or one of the participants to give a short summary of what happened in the case. And so often there's one person recounting uh, what actually happened, at least in my experience. This is actually generally very short. Uh But here they're actually talking about this being a much more collaborative process. So I'm actually going to read part of this from the article because they describe it pretty well. But this is how they do it. First of all, the debriefer stands in front of the board right over on the right-hand side where the end of the scenario is and said, okay, what was the state of things at the end? And gets the participants to help them describe the patient at the end of the scenario. Then the debriefer moves right over to the left-hand side of the board and says, okay, what was the state of the patient at the start of the scenario? And then they draw a big line between the two things, and then they invite the participants to come up to the board and start writing in what happened when and drawing a bit of a timeline of what happened. Now, they've got some pretty precise uh, instructions that they give to the participants in order to do this they basically tell them your, your role is very important because they do want this to be a collaborative process they tell them that they want it in quite a deal of detail and they actually try and encourage the participants to essentially mentally revisit the scenario and they mentioned something here that i've not heard of but apparently there's an encoding specificity theory in play here where they try and by reliving things, you can actually then situate the person in that reflective mode more effectively uh, than if you don't do that. Uh, And then while they're doing all this, the debriefer is trying to encourage that reflection. Um, They get pushed, is there anything else that you want to add? And the debriefer then adds some other objective data that they might have about events that happened. Uh, and then they jump into their analysis phase. So it's pretty, um, pretty time-consuming and pretty exhaustive, Ben, but I guess you would end up with a very collaborative process. And I would say you'd started to do, as they mentioned in their discussion, quite a deal of the reflection uh, as you do that. But um, what was your impression of doing this exercise?
1: Yeah, look, I was really trying to actively keep an open mind because it's very, different and new to what I would normally do. And I guess my underlying concern is just the opportunity cost of the time that this is taking. Um, And uh, I think it sounded nice that you're activating your learners, you're getting them to really, really feel like their contributions are important and mapping out this event. But I'm not sure for a lot of my learning objectives that actually mapping out a very detailed timestamp of what happened is always going to help me reinforce my learning points so I just I have concerns about the time that this would take I actually really liked it you suggested that in um, the map does something similar like this during the simulation which seemed like a great way of uh, activating your observers
0: yeah and um, you know we do that because just so much happens in our trauma sims and to try and get you know, 30 people to try and <laughs> attack a whiteboard like that would be impossible. And they wouldn't know because they're often very engaged in other parts of it. Um, yeah, I think you're right. I, I just don't know what the trade-off is between the engagement that clearly this would be. Uh, and I'm not sure, but I they put a lot of emphasis on this power of visual representation. So maybe that's important. Uh, again, they say that It encourages maybe some structured reflection rather than mere rumination, which is sometimes what happens in a reactions phase. And interestingly, they talk about helping the debriefer cognitive load. Uh, Maybe, maybe not. The issues I had were actually a little bit different to yours. I think it creates a very powerful chronological structure to the debrief, which I may or may not want. Uh, Because I feel like then having put so much attention on the timeline, that time-based targets become one of the critical things. Now, that might be perfect for your resuscitation scenario, as they mentioned, but it might not be great for some other scenarios. And I think it might fall down in scenarios where there's not so much action, uh, whether it comes to observed, measurable, kind of critical points, uh, and yet those scenarios obviously many times have just as much learning impact. So I think for the right group picked in the right place, this is clearly going to be a useful thing to do. But um, like all methods, not to be followed slavishly and, um, you know, without thinking about the context.
1: Yeah, I I agree. I'm not a fan of a chronolo- like a slavishly chronological debrief and then I, I, nothing more upsetting than getting to the really interesting stuff just as we've run out of time and I think so many debriefs are time critical everybody's got to be somewhere else and so uh, actively choosing a structure that is specifically chronological to me uh, doesn't isn't always going to make sense and actually interestingly in their uh, discussion they, they point out that the debriefing Progresses logically rather than jumping around from point to point, and that was sort of labelled as a strength. Where I guess my counter argument would be that I think one of the important roles of a debriefer is to uh, facilitate an emphasis on important topics for discussion, uh, whether that's negotiated or determined by the instructor. But um, I think that's part of the skill. And I guess um, if you're going to be a, a slave to time, it's not necessarily. Allowing you to optimize that discussion,
0: yeah, I'm definitely with you on that. All right, well, enough methods and metrics, do you think for 2019, Ben?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think we've done well.
0: I know now, look I did I did try and find something funny uh, related to Christmas simulation. went down a rabbit hole of googling. Uh, got worried that no one replied to my tweet, which is, have you got any funny literature about Christmas simulation? No. So I had to find up my own, and I did discover a Christmas shopper simulator, Black Friday, which is actually a game that you can play which simulates being in a shopping centre around Christmas. I'm not sure why people need a simulation of this because – whether and you know they actually it's quite you know you've got the car park situation uh, they describe it as train your wits and fists for real life black friday missions and achievements selfie sticks you know i guess if you really want to train for going shopping over christmas it's the right thing to do it comes on playstation xbox and nintendo for people who are interested uh for a simpler one uh roblox has a santa simulator um which is a little bit for younger children, and so you could have a go there as well. But that was the extent of that was the extent of Christmas simulation I could find. Yeah, so. and did
1: you did you play it? Is my question.
0: No. <laughs> oh
1: so seriously, I had so much to do today, and I am sitting there playing that stupid Santa Simulator <laughs> because uh, my critique of Santa Simulator would be that uh, you can't get on it. So you click on it, and it says, "Sorry, your access level is denied." But I did get into the alpha of Santa Simulator Two, which all right, is truly the most horrendous. How
0: did you go versus the, the seven-year-olds who were playing it online? Did you? Uh,
1: well, can I just say hello there? One, two, three, four. I am coming for you. I am getting those cookies next time <laughs> you passed it. But- <laughs>
0: All right. Well, um, based on your experience, I will put the details of that in the show notes
1: for anyone that wants to come <laughs> you know, In Santa Simulator 2, you don't even look like Santa. You just look like a Lego person who breaks into a house. <laughs> it's quite strange.
0: <laughs> so that's, I think, a challenge for simulation educators everywhere. Um, Christmas 2020, we expect a lot more from you if we can have a few more uh, expert simulation activities designed (laughs) in the next 12 months it would make this this uh podcast next year a whole lot more interesting
1: absolutely game on
0: (laughs) well ben it's been a pleasure we're having a little rest for january i presume
1: uh yep yep just gonna recharge and uh we'll start up in the new year
0: Excellent. Well, uh, for Simulcast listeners, a couple of little updates. If you are coming to IMSH, the International Meeting for Simulation Healthcare in San Diego, uh, on starting about the 19th of January, Jesse and I will see you there and we'll look forward to it. There'll be lots happening. Uh, there are uh, coming up. I'm doing a book review of that simulation research book of Deborah Nestles and Aaron Calhoun. Well, that'll be a little review that we'll – Uh, put out sometime in january and then yes we will let you know on our various platforms when the february journal club article is up and hopefully come along and comment on the blog post if you're wondering what we're up to definitely go to www.simulationpodcast.com because also there you will see the show notes and as ever ben's lovely pdf summary of the paper and the commentary by our discussants So, Ben, happy holidays.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for a lovely year again. And thank you to everyone who came along and joined with us this year. I think we looked at some uh, challenging papers. We looked at multiple papers in some months and some fairly complex psychological stuff. So uh, thank you to everyone who joined us along the way and made such wonderful contributions to the online discussions. I really appreciate it. And big shout out to the Mata Curry Club. I hope it continues next year.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you, Ben, and uh, I'll look forward to chatting you then. This is Victoria Brazel signing off for Simulcast. You're listening to Simulcast.